0: Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem as a provincial governor of the region in 445 BC. The appeals he made to the Persian king Artaxerxes were largely successful. He didn't return empty-handed to the region. The king agreed to to partially uh, fund their reconstruction efforts to city walls. Immediately upon arriving in Jerusalem, he secretly surveys the the damage to those walls and and found out that it was as bad as it had been uh, told him. So immediately, he gets the people working, and then in chapter three, we have a fairly tedious list of all of the different participants who were working on the wall on the reconstruction efforts. That's the background of chapter four. Before I read it, I wonder if you ever heard of the, uh, it's called the Stockdale Paradox, James Stockdale was, you may recognize the name, he was the uh, VP candidate on the Ross Perot ticket in 1992. During the Vietnam War, he was the highest ranking naval officer to be captured as a POW. He was imprisoned in the Hanoi Hilton for I think seven or so years, tortured over 20 times. The Stockdale Paradox is captured in an interview he conducted several years ago. He was asked the question, who who didn't make it out? Which of the POWs didn't survive? And and he said, oh, that's easy. It was the optimists. The optimists, yeah. It was the ones who uh, said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, then it would be Christmas again. And eventually they died of a broken heart. So James Stockdale and his fellow POWs found that the way to stay alive was twofold. Number one, by being brutally honest about the bleakness of their situation. And number two, by never giving up hope, by never giving up on the idea that one day, one day we are going to get out of here. Stockdale explained, you must never confuse, confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. I mean, the world's crazy right now. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. We, you saw the pictures... In San Francisco or in Seattle, of you know, apocalyptic orange skies is like the whole western United States, it feels like, is, is burning up. I mean, every time you turn on the news, it's just one enormous dump, dumpster fire of... I mean, we hear something either deeply tragic or just patently absurd, and, you know, there's memes now. Uh, 2020, <laughs> what do you expect? It's, it's just 2020... You know, the year of calamity, the year will never end. I think this Stockdale Paradox is instructive for us uh, in several ways. I mean, maybe we need to be on guard that uh, we say, well, the vaccine is coming. The vaccine is coming. (laughs) Uh, Maybe we need to be on guard that the vaccine could be like Christmas and um, could be like Easter. It could be like Thanksgiving. Maybe somebody says, well, the election is coming and that's going (laughs) to make everything better. I, I doubt There are many people saying that, but maybe you saw this week, uh, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway did fairly extensive research on the religious, the theological beliefs of Americans and broke it down by different demographics. Uh, Evangelical Christians, they surveyed and they found, I know that's a loaded term, like what is an evangelical Christian, but it's it's used. Apparently 30% of evangelical Christians deny the deed of Jesus Christ. Like one out of three evangelicals today say Jesus was a good guy, good teacher, not God. Uh, Another 46% of them believe that people are good by nature. Another 22% of them think that gender identity is a matter of personal choice. That's the state of the church today. I don't know. I don't want to be too pessimistic. But when I look at on the world, I, I don't see a lot of grounds for optimism. At the same time, we have every reason to hope. We've been talking about it throughout the service. Christ, is, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We have every reason as Christians to hope. Um, but we shouldn't confuse that hope with some kind of naive short-term optimism. I think something of the, the Stockdale Paradox is found in today's passage that we're going to read. I also think it's definitely something that needs to be part of the American church's mindset in the, the next decade or so. What are they building? If even a fox fox climbed up on it, he would break down their walls of stones. Then once again, Nehemiah prays, hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders." So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, I should have mentioned this, so he would have been the governor of uh, Samaria. Tobiah, the Ammonite, would have been the governor east of the River Jordan. The Arabs were to the south, and the Ammonites were to uh, the uh, west. I said the no. Tobiah would have been. Yeah, he is in the in the in the east. Ammonites are in the west. The men of Ashdod are to the west. So essentially, the picture that's being paid in verse 7, I didn't do a good job of it, but is that they're surrounded on every side by enemies. When they heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. And also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. And then the Jews who live near them came and told us 10 times over that wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I, Nehemiah, stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes." When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spear, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the, from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At the time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when we went for water. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. There were tons and tons and tons and tons of metric, metric tons of rubble. I mean, so much stone. If you just consider all that this construction project, uh, reconstruction project of the wall entailed. Uh, so much stone and rubbish. I mean, to think like moving all of that, it's not as though they have uh, a bobcat or, I mean, it's backbreaking work. Sambalat, the enemy, is not exaggerating much when he drew attention to, to the fact how difficult it would be of turning heaps of burnt rock into you know, a new city wall that is worthy of, of protecting a city. Chapter 3, though boring, is instrumental because it lays out for us the geographical, uh, the, the way that they were going about the reconstruction project. And it describes the wall as a series of gates separated by by um, by wall, so there's the sheep gate, then a stretch of the wall to the fish gate, then a stretch of the wall to the old gate, and then a stretch of the wall to the valley gate, a stretch of the wall to the dung gate, stretch of the wall to the fountain gate, a stretch of the wall to the horse gate, and then uh, the horse gate circles all the way back to the sheep gate, well, you wonder, reading it, how large was Nehemiah's wall? I, Surprisingly, I couldn't find hardly any reliable estimates. What we do know is that in the 16th century, when Jerusalem was uh, under the, the rule of the Ottoman Empire, uh, they went to rebuild the old walls of the city. And the, the reconstruction projects of, of those old, the old walls, it was two and a half miles. The walls were eight feet in width, and they were 40 feet tall. So it gives us maybe something of an approximate of what Nehemiah was doing, and so in addition to all the rubble that needed to be cleared, all of the stones that needed to be stacked, there are seven gates that had to be re- reconstructed. Uh, seven gates with, you know, metal and, and beams of wood and, and architectural um, necessities. Uh, I mean, no wonder the builders when they look at this, they're like, "We can't do it. It's impossible." Th- we, it, the project is too much for us. And we're surrounded on all sides by our enemies who are going to attack us at, at any minute. They, I mean, everybody's saying that, you know, they're behind the bush sneaking up on us. And I mean, everybody had to be so on edge and frightened. And as to that, um, the Nehemiah gives one of the coolest responses in all the Bible. But look with me in verse 14. Here's what he says to a frightened, tired, beleaguered people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And it seems to me that's like precisely what the church needs to hear today. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ, who is great and awesome. And remember that you are fighting for the most precious thing in the world to you. You're fighting for your families. And you're fighting for each other's families. Yeah, the task is great. Yes, it is so overwhelming. Yes, it looks rather bleak. Do not stop working, keep up the work. And it's as uh, Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. It's as Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and God's righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You know, they prepared for the worst. You you see how half of the men are holding swords. Others are holding um, trowels for bricklaying, laying or, um, you know, Charles Spurgeon, one of his... His weekly, or maybe it was monthly publication, back at the Metro, Me- Metropolitan um, Tabernacle. He, he, it was titled that, the, the Sword and the Trowel. This idea that we're, we're building and we're protecting. Um, they, pre- they were preparing for the worst. And Nehemiah keeps a trumpet beside him at all times. In case the, there is an attack, you know, listen to the trumpet. We'll all join at the place you hear the trumpet calling. But I really believe, and it's a simple, simple point, it's a simple sermon today. When there's too much rubble, when it's all overwhelming, do not fear. Remember the Lord Jesus. And remember that you're fighting for your families, for your wives, your children, and each other's families. What is remarkable, it only took them 52 days to rebuild the wall. A task that hadn't been completed in 140 years. That impossible task was completed in a little over seven weeks' time. I think it's always good for us to remind ourselves when we come to a building passage in the Bible, what is it that the church is, is supposed to be doing? What is she supposed to be building? Um, God has already done the building. I mean, the scriptures call us, he, the scripture call the church that we are a temple Of the Holy Spirit we we are you know formed and fashioned it calls us stones in that the wall of that temple we are fitted together as living stones nevertheless we're supposed to be building and doing something and I I have at least I think three very short points I'll I'll keep it short because great air quality today number one uh, we have to be about the Great Commission don't we Uh, It is what Jesus gave us to do. It is what Jesus himself did. When Jesus launched his public ministry, he called people to repent and believe the good news of the gospel. And after Jesus was risen from the dead, he sent out his apostles to bear witness to his resurrection and to announce repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. That carries over into the book of Acts. I mean, the Great Commission has to be the heartbeat of any healthy church. And we can't can't forget, we simply can't forget how critically important the Great Commission is. Number two, I think that each one of us has to strive to cultivate the, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, like true character virtues inside of us. We, we have, And we do that by imitating Jesus, who in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, dark Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went off to a solitary place to do what? To pray. And the number, way, no, number one way that we cultivate the spirit fruit is by prayer. And then later in Mark chapter 6, verse 31... It says, because so many people were coming and going to him and his disciples, the disciples did not even have a chance to eat. They were serving so many people. And Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Come and rest. Come and pray. Come and rest. Come and meditate on the scriptures. Be busy serving others. But be sure that you, um, you do those things. I think 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 8 through 12 are exceptionally instructive for us in in our day of busyness. Paul says to a church, he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life will win the respect of outsiders. And what he's talking about there is simple, uh, quiet faithfulness. Working hard, providing for your family, serving one another in brotherly love, he talks about in chapter four, building up the body of Christ. Make no mistake about it, that is a life well lived. Sometimes quiet faithfulness is the very best thing that we can do. I love how Kevin DeYoung, um, he's always so insightful, but he reminds us to just like, remember the reality and remember our own limitations. He he says, Please remember this. Please remember that the online world is not the primary world we should inhabit. You know, when younger people say to me, uh, you need to be doing something, whatever that something may be, you know, they're often thinking about doing something online, you know, making a statement, joining a hashtag, posting a symbolic gesture. And yes, that is one way of doing something. But prayer is also another way of doing something. Educating yourself is also doing something. Raising kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord is doing something. Giving money in secret is doing something. Correcting and encouraging others in private is doing something. Teaching and preaching and praying in public. Uh, Being salt and light in the workplace is doing something, we should not think that the digital world is the only one that counts or or is even the one that's most important. I mean, of course, it's not. I mean, the digital world is largely a, a fake world. It's a fictitious world. You know, if you scroll through your social media feed, it can feel overwhelming. I mean, because there simply aren't enough hours in the day to do everything other people are telling us we must do. You know, be passionate about adoption, eradicate racism, end abortion, provide clean water, reform the criminal justice system, a thousand other things, a thousand other really good things. But like, remember your limitations. Not everybody is going to be called into doing the same thing. There are only so many hours in a day. You know, my primary vocation, he says, is first to be a joyful, holy holy follower of Jesus, then to be a good husband and a father, then to be a faithful pastor, then to be a good friend. Um, by all means, we should feel guilty about disobeying direct commands of Scripture, but we should not feel guilty for not living the life someone else wants us to live. Thought it's well put. I mean, I really am a, a big, big believer in quiet faithfulness. I'm also a big believer in uh, living in community. We talk about it a lot. Of all the characters in the Chronicles of Narnia, kids, did you hear me? I said Chronicles of Narnia. Of all the characters, perhaps the most loved is none other than the valiant mouse, Reepicheep, The irascible, yet always courteous, utterly fearless, moved by a deep concern for honor, uh, oftentimes his own honor, which gets him into trouble. If you remember in Prince Caspian, Reepicheep almost dies in battle. And he experiences something of like a resurrection from the dead. I mean, if it weren't for Lucy's ability to heal with the drops of her diamond um, bottle, he would have died. But he, he's, uh, he's healed. He's, he's risen. He leaps to his feet. And he bows before the lion, Aslan, whom he loves more than life. Only to realize what has happened. He's missing something, kids. What was it that he was missing? His tail. He's missing his tail. He lost his tail in battle. And so Reepicheep pleads with Aslan to restore his tail. And Aslan doesn't do it. He, He uses it as an opportunity to discuss with Reepicheep if uh, he in fact cares too much for his own honor, but then something wonderful happens. His fellow mice encircle him, and they draw their swords. And Aslan wonders, "What is this?" The second in command, the second of the talking mice, Peepa Cheek. Is that how you say it? Peepa Cheek. <laughs> I'm messing it up. Peepa Cheek. Peepa. Forget it. <laughs> Stands up and says, May it please your high majesty, we are all waiting to cut off our own tails. If our chief must go without his, we will not bear the shame of wearing an honor which is denied to the high mouse. To which Oslan roars in approval. Ah, <laughs> you have conquered me. You have great hearts. Not for the sake of your dignity, Reaper Cheep, but for the love that is between you and your people. You shall have your tail again. And to me, that's what the local church ought to be all about. You know, that, that deep love for each other, that, that each for the other, that you know, all for one and one for all, that uh, all hands on deck, that sense of, of just deep mutual concern. You see it demonstrated in Nehemiah chapter 3. I keep referring to that chapter. Maybe I should have read it, but uh, the long list. So the long list of the people who participate in the reconstruction efforts, guess who gets listed? Guess who's working on the walls? It's not the members of the pipe fitters union. It's not construction guys. It says it's priests and it's jewelers and it's perfume makers It's merchants, it's politicians, it's mothers, it's daughters, it's Jews from eight surrounding cities. It and the most common refrain, if you go back and read it, the most common repeated uh, uh, phrase that appears in Nehemiah chapter three is simply this: "And next to him, and next to him, and next to him, and next to him, shoulder to shoulder." Isn't it beautiful? Shoulder to shoulder, all the way around the city, they labored. Some with a sword, some with a trowel, some with a trumpet. They build a wall. 52 days. Because everybody worked. Everybody pitched in. I recall Jonathan Edwards, also, I think a bit of very valorous, very zealous for King Jesus and at the age of 19, 19, he wrote his famous resolutions. And resolution number six was resolved to live with all my might while I live. And by that, he meant to live with all my might for the Lord Jesus Christ while I live. To never be lacking in zeal. To keep my spiritual fervor. To serve the Lord with my whole heart. You know, R- Romans 12:1 stuff. To live with all my might for the Lord Jesus Christ As long as I live, and I can tell you this: I mean, when we think about the most important thing to us, probably is passing on our faith to our kids. There is nothing more powerful than to be next to him, who is next to him, who is next to him, of people who have that kind of zeal, who who are committed to living with for the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their might. You know one of the things that really excites me about bringing Jeff Francian, Francian on as a youth um, uh, pastoral intern and working with our youth and working with you parents is like his, his, his passion is is infectious it 's contagious. You cannot listen to the man and not realize that i mean he is, he is so zealous he 's so zealous that your kids would love the church that your kids would love the gospel that your your kids would you know, dig in deep to Jesus. And I could say like the most powerful force that we have are, are, are all of us being side by side with that kind of spirit. In conclusion, when I think about the church in America in the short term, I, I find little reason for short term optimism. I find every reason for deep hope. I think the re- real spiritual um, renewal may come to the church, I hope for it, over the next 10 or so, 15, 20 years, they're not going to be easy. They're going to be difficult. Uh, Paul suggests that it'll happen in this way. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces what? Hope. Character produces hope. And so brothers and sisters... Let us live in community together. Let us share life together. Let us share meals together. Let us help each other raise our kids. Let us us learn endurance together. Let us remember that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. And Christ will triumph. So when it feels like there's too much rubble and it's too overwhelming and we can't accomplish the task, remember, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ and keep fighting for your families and for each other's family. Amen.